All right, we'll move that up. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, turn there with me to Second Samuel. We are in chapter 14 today. I'm just going to move this up a little bit. There we go. We're in chapter 14. That's where we'll find ourselves. If you don't have a Bible, of course, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own a Bible, please uh, take it home with you. Um, we are going through this book together. Uh, I will not, uh, it's a long chapter, I will not have all the verses up, so you'll need your Bibles open to Second Samuel chapter 14. And, and this final section, as we look to continue through this book and finish up this book, really is the details of the consequences of King David's sins that he will endure and suffer through. So let me just quickly bring everybody up to speed. If you've never heard of King David, King David is the second king of Israel. He has is, he is at this point conquered Jerusalem, settled in there. He's solidified the 12 tribes. He brought a great amount of prosperity and peace to Israel. Very importantly, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, he, uh, God makes a covenant with him. Uh, very important. And as we go through this book, it's, it's important to understand that covenantal promise uh, so we don't get caught in the minor details and see the greater picture of what God is doing. God gave David a, a promise that he himself would not build him a temple, but his son will. But more importantly, he will raise up from the lineage, from the seed, uh, from, from, from the seed of, of David, a son who will sit on an eternal throne. So either, either his sons will continue on forever or there will be an eternal son who will come and his name we know is Jesus who will reign and rule in perfect judgment and perfect righteousness. And this covenantal promise that God made to David in Second Samuel really is a continuation that God had already promised to Adam, to, to Abraham and to Moses. There are several covenants in the Old Testament and although there are some nuances and differences, they are connected, interlocked with one another, because all the covenant points to the new covenant, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why our series is called The King of Kings. And as we read the scripture, as we've got into this section, um, even when we look at saints of old, when we look at men who show great faith and great courage, uh, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sense that we all long for someone who doesn't fail, who doesn't mess up. The longing that we have to see someone come who to reign and rule in righteousness and perfect judgment and righteousness is part of the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God that God has created us in His image and our hearts long for justice and righteousness, a person, a place where righteousness rules and injustice will be no more. That's why our hearts are, are broken when we see the brokenness of this world. That's why we should not be shocked. We should not be shocked by the failures of men like Abraham, men like King David. They're not the ones. Neither is Paul, the great apostle. Read Romans 7. He struggled with his sin. Knowing this doesn't make it easier, as we go through the text, to see these men of God, these men of old, these, these men of great faith, fail miserably, fall flat on their faces as David did. But it shouldn't shock us. It makes us sad, but it shouldn't shock us. We know David commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then we know that Bathsheba is the wife of his loyal friend and soldier, Uriah, 
And so David has him killed. And old David receives this pardon from God for, for his adultery, for his, his lying, for his deceiving, for his murder. He receives his pardon. We, we looked at this already. We, we know that David does not sidestep or does not endure consequences because of his sin. 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you have a Bible, turn there with me. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Very important. Now, therefore... Because you've sinned, now therefore, the sword shall not depart from your house. I've forgiven you, but the sword shall not depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you and your own house. You received your pardon, but hear the consequences of your sin. And that, my friends and family, that's the commentary, the background commentary of the rest of Second Samuel. The consequences, the suffering, the consequences of David's sin. It began with David's son who died. The son to David and Bathsheba, the child, died. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. Then last week, or two weeks ago, Perry filled in last week. Two weeks ago, we saw the consequence of David's sin in the, the rape, the, the, the rape of David's daughter, Tamar. She was violated by her half-brother, Amnon. A very tough passage we covered two weeks ago. And I said that this before, and I'll say it again. If you're struggling with any kind of thing of that nature, we're here to love you and to help you and to point you in the right direction, to, to lead you, to maybe connect you with someone that can bring healing to your broken heart. If you remember from chapter 13, though, Amnon violated his half-sister, David's other son, Amnon, Absalom, David's other son as well, it was his full sister. So Amnon raped his half-sister. Absalom is Tamar's full brother, and he was not happy, remember? He waited two years. He waited two years and then plotted to murder in cold blood his brother, half-brother Amnon, for what he did to his sister. It wasn't a fit of rage. It wasn't... Uh, a fit of passion. He waited two years. And what did David do? David did nothing. David got angry, but David did nothing. Absolutely nothing. The king who is to be the one to reign and to rule in righteousness and justice, in equity, as the scripture teaches us, did absolutely nothing. And now we're chapter 14. Today, David will reap more of his consequences. We ended chapter 13, before I read chapter 14, we ended chapter 13 with Absalom, who killed Amnon in cold blood. After he killed him, after two years, he waited two years, he kills Amnon, and then he flees from Jerusalem. And he flees to a place called Gesher. At the end of chapter 13, he, he's gone. He has left the community. He has left uh, Jerusalem, and then he fled to Geshur. And that's where we pick up the story. David's daughter has been raped. Absalom killed Amnon, who did it. And now Absalom has fled Jerusalem and taken off to Geshur. Chapter 14 opens. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Joab, the son of Zeruah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, 
pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king, Joab is saying. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the hair also. They, they would, this, thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house. I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me. Be the guilt, my lord, the king. And on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me. That's what David says. And he shall never touch you again. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more. And my son be not destroyed. And he said, David said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. Inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now, I have found, I have come to say this to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that he, the king, will perform the request of the servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord, the king, will set me at rest. For my lord, the king, it comes a little bit of uh, accolades. Like the angel of God to discern good and evil, the Lord God be with you, David. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything. I ask you. The woman said, let my lord speak. The king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered, he said, As surely as you live, my lord, the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord, the king, has said. It was your servant, Joab, who commanded me. It was he who put all the words in my mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant, Joab, did this. But my lord has wisdom, like the the, the angels of God, to know all things that are on the earth. A little more accolades. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, must have been hiding behind a tree. I grant this, go. Bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face and to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, the king, and that the king has granted the request of your servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. 
And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his feet to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his hair of his head at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weights. He was born to Absalom, three sons, one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming to the king's presence. Then Absalom, verse 29, sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. He sent a second time, but Joab would not come to him. Then he said to his servant, see Joab's field is next to mine? He has barley there. Go set it on fire. I mean, who does that? So, so Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom and his house. And he said to him, why have your servant set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, behold, I send word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king. Why have I come from Geshur? It would have been better for me to be still, to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king and there. And this is interesting. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and said and told him. He summoned Absalom. So he came to the king, bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. (laughs) End of chapter 14. May God add a blessing to the reading of his inerrant holy word. Interesting. Three people, three movements, really. Joab's collusion, no political pun there. David's concession, which just had a C in it. And then Absalom's commission. Okay? Now, I, I want to I, I talk to you a little bit. I don't usually do this, but there's just some language things that are going on. And in order to put this story in proper context. We just have to do a little bit of language work, okay? Um, At the end of chapter 13, if you have your Bibles open, at the end of chapter 13, our English Bibles say, at least ESV, and the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. That's the end. Then in chapter 14, it opens up with some similar words. Now, Joab, the son of Zeruah, went, knew, excuse me, that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Okay? So the, here's, here's what's going on. I believe what's going on. And I don't think, I don't think the, the English text picks it up. In chapter 13, verse 39, the word longed, the verb, is very, very strong. It means to come to an end, to, 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 to be used or to be held back, uh, done with something. The spirit of the king came to the end of himself. He, he was held back to go out to Absalom. And the word to go out has been used in the Hebrew, in the, Hebrew, in the, in the Old Testament, as a phrase that is meant to be, uh, a phrase that is, that is said to be hostile, to go out to war, like in um, Deuteronomy 28, talking about go out to war. It's, it's, it's a word that could mean hostility toward another group. So another translation, and it's ambiguous to some degree in 13, uh, chapter 13 on the last verse, but it can be translated this way. Absalom fled, and this held the king back 
from marching against God in that hostile against Absalom, but he mourned over Abnon because he was dead. There was a, a mourning of Abnon. What's interesting about the text is in chapter 14, verse 1, that word longed isn't there. It's not there. In fact, it simply says Joab knew that the heart of the king was against or upon Absalom. Okay, the reason why I bring all that up is I think what's happening here is there's a lot of dysfunction in David's heart. There's a love that he has for his children, but there's also a hostility and anger toward Absalom. It's not, oh, I love him so much, I can't wait to see him, as the English translation kind of says. That's not what's happening here, because we're going to see Joab set this, this collusion into place in order to get David to bring Absalom home because he didn't want him home. The only way he didn't want him home is because there was hostility toward him. He's trying to get David to see his ways because David is at the end of himself. David is, is still just not right. He loves his children. He loves Amnon. He's mourning over Amnon. I'm sure he loves Absalom, who's next in line. Of the, but he's angry. He's hostile. There, there's something going on, and David has kept him away. That's what makes this whole story of the woman of Tekoa make sense. And Joab, we will see, I, I believe, is, is really a slick politician. As the story continues, we'll see that David is still angry with Absalom. David is reluctant to take up arms and to go get Absalom, but ironically, it is Absalom, who we will see in the next few chapters, who will actually take up arms against his father. So, Absalom murders Abnon. He's, he's, he's forced to flee to, to Gesher. Now, Gesher's important because Gesher was the place where his grandfather was. Okay, First Chronicles 3 tells us that Absalom's mom, Micaiah, or Amaicah, is the daughter of the king of Gesher. So Absalom has left Jerusalem and he's run into family. He went home to his grandfather's place. And he is, like David, in exile. He is at a place like David was when he was running from Saul in territory that's outside of Israel. And in, in, in a place just like David was. And he flees, I think it's 80, 80 miles north. So he's quite a distance away. 80 miles may not be much to us, but... Again, without cars or on foot, 80 miles is, is quite a ways. And it seems that the, the narrative, it's, it's an interesting narrative. Um, spent a lot of time reading it and just reading over it. The, the narrative opens with an impasse. Absalom is in Gesher, not welcome home, doesn't come home. David is in Jerusalem and doesn't want him there. It, it seems that they have this, this impasse that is going on. And it was in this impasse that David is, is, is incapable of administering justice. And Absalom is unable to return home. In comes this collusion and deception. In comes Joab and his story. And I think it's self-centeredness. I think it's self-agenda. I, I don't think Absalom, excuse me, I don't think Joab really was looking out for the kingdom, although I think to some degree. Um, but he comes up with this story, and he goes to a, find a woman in Tekoa, which is about 10 miles of Jerusalem. 
And like I said, I, I think he's loyal, but I think he's selfish. It's very interesting as the story unfolds because Joab, who is Joab? You remember who Joab is? Joab is a cold-blooded murderer too. Joab helped David kill Uriah, but Joab is the one that took a vengeance on his own brother's death when he killed Abner, if you remember. So he's not the most clean, innocent person here. In fact, as the story continues, he doesn't listen to David. He has Absalom killed. Spoiler alert. He has his, his, his cousin with a kiss, sort of like a Judas thing. He has him killed. He's got some issue. He ain't innocent in all of this. He wants Absalom back to Jerusalem. Absalom needs to come back. He sees there's a problem in the kingdom, but, but one can't wonder if Joab is thinking, what's in this for me? So he colludes. He, he finds a woman. She's unnamed in the story. And, and what I find so interesting is that Joab goes and finds a woman to go and speak to David. Find that interesting? Who was the woman that came to David and spoke to him so that her, her husband, who was a crazy man, a, a, a foolish man, not to be killed, right? You remember that story? Abigail. Abigail speaks to David and convinced him not to kill her husband. I find, I find that interesting. We know that David already has his issues with women. And I don't mean that in a good sense, right? We don't, we don't mean that in a good sense. And what was also interesting is he sends this woman to speak to David in word pictures, the same thing that Nathan did. So Joab is a smart man. Joab knows how to reach David. Let me get a woman. Let me use word pictures just as Nathan did to get him to do what he needs to do. She tells him a story. My sons. My sons had gathered together and, and one of the sons murdered the other son. And now the family has risen up against us and wants to kill my only son. And in that culture, that's a real problem. She appeals to David in his mercy. This was not premeditated. This was, this was an act of, 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 of heat over a quarrel. I mean, even the law of God, there's, there's mercy that can be given. And she says to him, listen, even my inheritance, verse 7, is, is up for grabs. Uh, I, and then she says, the coal that I have that keeps me warm, the very sustenance of life will be taken from me. And finally, David, listen, if they kill my only son, there's no remnant of my family. I'm a widow. They're going to take my inheritance. They're going to murder my only son. They're going to leave me without coal. And they're going to take the remnant of my family, my, my husband's name, erased from the, universe, from, the, from the earth. At first, David tries to send her away. All right, I heard you. Go to your house. I'll, I'll get to you. She don't want to hear that, verse 10. If anyone says anything, he finally says. He finally gives in. She's persistent. If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me. He shall never touch you again. Okay? He's the king. He's a judge. He just rendered a decision. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God. She wasn't satisfied. Invoke the Lord your God. That the avenger of blood kill no more. And my son, be not destroyed. And he said, okay. As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Hook, line, and sinker. David promises to protect his son, her son, to not execute the son, and, and, and that the son will stay with mom. And then, in a very clever conclusion, she, she just says, just like Nathan said, David, the story you just, that I just told you, you're the man. You're the man. 
This ruling brings conviction upon yourself. You have banished Absalom. So that he remains an outcast. Yes, Absalom had to flee to Geshur, but you've done nothing to bring him back. Verse 13. Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? If that's your rendering, if that is your decision, why are you doing this against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. Do you notice here that the ramifications of the king, of the leader of God's people, has ramifications for the people of God? It's not just David. It's for the leaders Bring, listen, leaders' actions bring implications upon those they lead. It's not just you. It's not just me. She's saying, listen, your actions will cause an uproar. Your, your kingdom is in trouble. And then she has her flattering words ending with, you know what? You're an angel of God. Verse 17, the Lord God be with you. She's a smart woman. You know, commentators argue, and I don't know why. Is all those words simply come from Joab? She just did everything. I'm like, no, this is a smart lady right here. I'm sure Joab had his collusion. He had his reason. But you have a smart woman who knows what to say, when to say it, how to say it. And she is flattering him. She's she's saying, yes, you, you have rendered correctly. Yes, this is you. But David smells something's not right. Look what he says. Who put you up to this? Oh, she says, you're so smart. It was Joab. He did it to change things around. See, Joab knew things needed to be changed. If he continued in this direction, in this course, with respect to Absalom, disaster loomed. That is why Joab took matters into his own hands. Joab, what was so interesting, he didn't seek the Lord. He didn't seek the prophet of God. He wasn't in prayer. He's taking matters into his own hands, thinking, yes, this is what I need to do to get these two men together to try to bring repair to the kingdom. What can we draw? What, can we, what, can, what principles can we draw from this? Let me, let me say this, and I think we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. The absence of David... While his son Absalom, the murderer, goes untouched, without discipline, nothing he does to, to bring any kind of justice upon him, and for the people and for the land and for Absalom is incredible. David is not only the king, David is his father. And it seems that David's emotions are all over the place. He can't work through his feelings to do what is just and what is right. One commentator said this, Nathan's parable, when Nathan talked to him about his adultery, Nathan's parable was designed to rouse the king's conscience as against his feelings. Running with his feelings, to rouse his conscience against his feelings. The woman of Tekoa, as promoted by Joab, was to arouse his feelings against his conscience, end quote. David was being led by his feelings. David was being led by his failures. That's not good. David was the anointed king. David was the man after God's own heart. David was a child of God and in relationship with his God. But he's running on his feeling and his failures. But you know what's so good? 
what's so good. Now, you need to hear this this morning. God does not give up on David. God does not give up on you. Okay, David, if that's the way you're going to live life, I'll see you in the next life. That's not what happens. A very real temptation, I think, for us, for men and women we face, is not always just outrightly rebelling against God, but the easier and equally destructive path of apathy and inaction. Family, we need to determine to to preach the gospel, to remind the gospel to ourselves, to allow the person and work of Jesus Christ to help us take responsibility and be a good steward of what God has given us, including our children. The gospel, the death that Jesus died for all our sins, all our shame, all our brokenness, and was buried and rose from the dead and frees us from shame, frees us from guilt, allows us, strengthens us, propels us to take responsibility because the fear of failure and shame is gone. The greatest fear has been nailed to the cross. No more guilt, no more condemnation. We should be a people who take responsibility. We're free to obey God, to love out of grace and take action because God is with us. God forgives us. God loves us. If Joab's collusions, and look what David does. David sees himself in the story and tells Joab, he says, oh, that was me. And then he says to Joab to go get his son. Once again, I think Joab is a mixed bag. If, if this is all we had, this is the only story, there would be some loyalty here, but we know that that's not true. I don't think Joab was seeking always the best for the kingdom. But here's the story. He falls down. He, he, he's showing homage. He's showing respect. And then he does and gets what he has colluded to do. And he goes and gets Absalom. And he goes and gets Absalom. He brings Absalom from Geshur. And he brings him to Jerusalem. But there's a problem, right? David says, okay, bring him to Jerusalem. But when he gets to Jerusalem, verse 24, let him dwell in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. Literally in the Hebrew, my face he shall not see. My face he shall not see. So the plan worked, sort of. Joab underestimated the king's hostility toward Absalom. It's hard to really know what's going on through David's mind and heart at this moment. Maybe maybe David says he can come to Jerusalem, but... You know what? He's going to have some punishment. He can't, he, he, he can't just live his life as if he's, he's my close son. David, but think about this. Think about what's happening. David says, bring him to Jerusalem, keep him over here. What is David doing again? David's not treating him as a murderer, bringing justice upon him. David's not even forgiving him, showing him grace, declaring him innocent, and welcoming him back. What is he doing? He's taking the easy road. If Absalom could be just stay over there, out of sight, out of mind, I could still go and do my thing and not take responsibility. Absalom has to be thinking, I'm here two years. I can't come into his, into his presence. Am I still going to be the next king? I'm next in line. Not that Amnon is dead. Then in the middle of the story, I love this, verse 25. We get a little bit of insight of Absalom. Look with me. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised. He was handsome. 
from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, not a blemish in him. And now look at all the, the he. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it when it was heavy on him. He cut it. He weighed the hair of his head. 200 shekels by the king's weight, right? Notice all the he. So we know how much it weighed because he cut it and he weighed it. He was a beautiful man and he knew it. Archaeologists have unearthed and discovered recently actual pictures of Absalom so we know what he looks like. (laughs) Flowing hair. Fabio, that's who he really is. But the story should remind us. It, it, the narrator doesn't say, this guy was gorgeous, handsome, hung, lots of hair, for no reason at all. Right? There's a reason. What, what is it reminding us of? It should remind us of 1 Samuel 9. He, there's a man who had a son whose name was Saul, a very handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than all the people. That was Israel's first pick for their king, right? We want a king over us. We want a king like everybody else has. We want a king who will judge us and fight our battles. We're not happy with the king, our God. We want a king. And you know what? Saul's a charismatic guy. He's a handsome guy. He's a complete failure as a king, but that's who we want. And then after what happens, right? God steps in. And tell Samuel, I want you to anoint the second king, the man of my choice. And Samuel goes to the house, and what does he do? He's ready to anoint one of Jesse's boys. Like, no, 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 not him. Not him. You, you keep looking at the outward appearance, First Samuel 16. Do not look, Samuel, at the outward appearance or the, on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Even Absalom's family was impressive. Verse 27. Three sons, one daughter, very beautiful girl. Her name was Tamar. Right? So he got a popular family. He got his own TV show. What a good-looking family. What a nice guy. Look how, look how handsome he is. His children all dress so nice. They listen to him so well. They're, they're up, 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 up. Right? Front of People magazine. Look at this wonderful family. And yet Tamar is mentioned. Just a gentle reminder of the backstory. So I think it goes to say, and let me just say this, for you beautiful people. It's not that God doesn't love and work through handsome, outwardly beautiful people. Some of you could say, well, that's good. Uh, that's great. But what the narrative is telling us that this outward hunk may have been perfect in body and his hair, but it was not beautiful on the inside. Peter would later write to the church concerning women. But I think the principle can be for everyone. The principle, not, not, not the braiding of hair, but the principle. He says, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, speaking to women, but, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. In other words, here is Mr. Israel with his own shell, but he's not fit for the kingdom. 
And the church has to be very careful. Lots of charismatic people out there that are not, that are not godly people. Douglas Webster describes the Fortune 500 pastor's desires. The, the, this, this Fortune 500 pastor's desire for the American church, contemporary American church. They must be winsome, charismatic, pastors who exclude, exclude pour out warmth and success, no more, knowing, known more for their humor than for their spirituality. Today's market, he says, today's market-sensitive pastors are relationally savvy. Instead of eliciting deep feelings of guilt as the old revivalists did, these pastors lift the spirit, promote optimism, and make people feel good about themselves. <laughs> End quote. What does Paul say about the leaders? <laughs> First Timothy. Character over charisma, personal godliness over giftedness. The church has to be careful. We don't want to fall into that Absalom trap. And it's also true, young people, for those that you are dating and going to marry. I'm not saying that Outward appearance means nothing. But I believe the scripture is clear. The inward devotion to Jesus, the disposition to glorify and treasure him above all earthly treasures is of utmost importance. Things and some things are just more important than looks. In a Reader's Digest advertisement, there was a farmer from Iowa who was looking and seeking for a wife. And in the advertisement it said, Farmer seeks wife, age 35, must have tractor, send picture of tractor. (laughs) Some things are more important. Loving Jesus is paramount. Verse 28. Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. The Hebrew is interesting. It says... Literally two years of days. In other words, the narrator wants us to know that he felt every single day he couldn't come into the presence. Now, so we know it's been five years since he fled, killed his brother. Seven years since his despicable, uh, Amnon's despicable rape of Tamar. So time is marching on and Absalom is growing impatient. He is not a humble man. It's time for Absalom to do something about the situation. Joab's collusion brings him home. David's concession kind of doesn't want to, doesn't do a whole lot. Absalom is seen as this beautiful dude. And then we see the commission. Verses 29 through 32 I just look at it and go, you know what? It's just a description of one giant crybaby who loves to manipulate people. He's, he's used to getting what Absalom wants. He's a child raised in that house. You know where that house is, where everyone is devoted to the child. Or hey, the child needs and, and his parents and all the other children exist to, to feed and to care and to do only for that child alone. He gets what he wants. And he's used to it. So after two years, he's sitting at home. He sends Joab a message, come and see me. Joab's like, no, nah, I'm not getting in the middle of this. I, I'm loyal to the king for now, and I'm not, I'm not, whatever, I'm not going. There's some loyalty there. Uh, I'm not intending to take sides. So he blows them off. He sends him a second time. Tell him to come to me. Joab blows him off again. So Absalom thinks, you know what? I know how to get his attention. Let me light his fields on fire. (laughs) It's not like you can go to Walmart, price shopper. Like a barley field was really important. You have your pieces of land for your family. 
Like this was his livelihood, right? I mean, look at the way Absalom is treating Joab. Joab is the one that went to bat for him. Joab is the one who, who went to bat for him, went to, went to the king for him. He stuck out his, his neck for him. He, he, he is the only advocate, really, if you think about it, as far as the text is concerned. He's the only advocate. Joab is the only advocate in David's court for Absalom. And what does he do? He lights his field on fire. Burn it down. It got his attention, all right. So Joab comes in verse 32. Dude, what are you doing? Well, I asked you to come to see me. You didn't, so I figured I'd light your fire, light your, your field on fire, which is so, so interesting because Absalom, I think, is full of rage and anger and selfishness, and now we have a fire. It's just, it's just a picture of his soul, right? He says, come here, verse 32. Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king and ask him, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there. I, I might as well stay there. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. Very interesting. Verse 32. Let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. That's a bold statement. He was guilty. You know what I think he's doing? I think he's playing on David's guilt. I, I, think, I think what he's saying is, bring me into the court of David. David is, is so messed up, he'll never... Find me guilty. Look how guilty he is. He did nothing. He's the king. He did nothing to me. He did nothing to, to Amnon who raped, his, you know, who raped his daughter. Who's guilty really here? Is it me or is it him? He's playing on David's failures. Satan loves to play on our failures. The enemy loves to know our weaknesses and play on them. Are you a person who feels bad all the time, beating yourself up? Satan loves that. Are you someone who promotes yourself and think you're so great? Satan loves that. He knows our weaknesses. That's, how, that's why it's so important to be in community. That's why it's so important to be in the Word. So important to be under the Word. So important to be Filled with the Spirit. So important to be seeking the glory of Jesus. So important to live in community together so that others will see our blind sides and we give them permission to speak to us. He's basically saying, my dad can't find guilt in me. Who's really the guilty one? Verse 33. Then Joab went to the king. <laughs> I guess he don't want his other field to be lit on fire. And he told him and he summons Absalom. So he came to the king and he bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king and he kissed Absalom. Now, something very interesting about that verse. Absalom came not to his father. The father did not greet his son. The king. Not David, not his father. There's no weeping. There's no repentance. There's no apologies. There seems to be, according to the scripture, Nothing recorded that anything was spoken between the two. That's an awkward meeting. Even the king's kiss looks more royal and official than familial or paternal. There's a gulf between father and son. Each other sees guilt. There's coldness. There's unforgiveness. Yeah, it's a small step toward reconciliation, which will never happen. But the question remains, is Absalom being honest? Will he be loyal to his father? The king has kissed his long lost son. 
But nothing else took place. And that signifies something. And we'll see as the story unfolds. But two stories come to mind that I think are very different. One is Joseph at the end of Genesis. When he meets his brothers, after his brothers have done all this to him, what's happening when they meet? There's repentance. There's, there's confession. There's weeping. There's conversation. Uh, um, Joseph extends the grace of God, the mercy of God that he himself has had. He extends it to his brothers. There's, there's reconciliation. You'll see that here. You know, the other story that comes to mind is the prodigal son. The prodigal son. In that story, the prodigal son returns and he's greeted by his father who was, the scripture says, full of compassion. And not only was there a kiss, there was conversation, there's repentance, there's celebration. But like most dysfunctional families, like David's is, these two never address the issues. There's silence. They gloss over the real problems that are before them. That never ends well. Absalom will live out and rebel against his father, and we will see. This is just the beginning. In fact, and and one of the commentaries pointed this out, I thought this was really good. Think for a moment with me that you're Absalom. It seems that all his schemes and plans and collusions and, and decisions he's made is worked out for the good, for him anyway. His sister... He wants vengeance against his half-brother for doing that to his sister. He waits, he plots, he gets men to help him. And then on the day he wants it done, plan goes exactly as he wanted. Amnon's killed. He flees, he comes back to Jerusalem. How can I get into my father's presence? I know, I'll light the field on fire. He lights the field on fire. Next thing you know, the guy he's looking for, Joab, comes walking in. And he's like, oh, this worked out pretty well. Listen, go to my father. Plan worked. Then the next thing you know, he's saying, okay, come, Joab, your father wants to see you. I'm going to be next king. I'm good. The the throne will be mine. All my plans are working out. This is the providence of God. That's a warning for us. Just because things fall into place, I hear it all the time. Just because, I'm not saying it can't be the providence of God or the good providence of God. But just because things fall into place does not necessarily mean that it is the good providence and the perfect will of God for you. We have to be careful, again, in the word, under the word, in community, especially in community. July 20th, 1944, a military conference was in progress and a briefcase was left under the table. Suddenly it exploded with a blazing sheet of flame. Moments later, Adolf Hitler... The intended victim was staggering outside of the debris, singed and tattered, but survived. Temporarily, with paralysis uh, paralysis of the right arm and and an eardrum that was punctured, but he was live. That later that day, he was scheduled to meet Benito uh, Mussolini from Italy, and and he went to the train. And when he met Mussolini, he brought Mussolini to the place where this bomb had blown up. And Hitler told Mussolini, I regard this event as the pronouncement of divine providence. When Mussolini had mentioned of the escapes he had been through, Hitler said this. Marvelous. Because Mussolini said it was marvelous. He said, marvelous? It's more than that. It's God's intervention. Look at this room. 
at my uniform. When I reflect on this, I know nothing will happen to me. Clearly, it is my divine task to continue on and to bring my great enterprise to completion. No, it wasn't. Be careful, church. Be in the word. Know the word. Get in real community. Give people a license to speak truth to you. As the story unfolds, we'll know, we'll see, Absalom, it will not end well with Absalom. Things don't go well for him. And this whole story here, chapter 14 particularly, is a, is a, is a father, a king, who, who's been caught between his responsibilities and his only solution was to compromise. David tried to punish Absalom. He kept him exile. He didn't, he didn't execute justice. He allowed him to return but had no fellowship with him. And both of the compromises of David failed miserably and only made the relationship worse. Sometimes, sometimes we see David as a foreshadow. We see David pointing to. We see David um, who looks like the true and better king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes we see David in his actions as antithetical, opposite of the gospel. And, and that helps us, I hope it helps us, long for God's grace given to David in the promise that he will establish in David and through David a kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness that will last forever through a greater and better son. It, it has to be better than David. It has to be better than Joab or Absalom for the mess that human sin has made. I want to end this story on an up note. Look at verse 24. I don't have it on the screen. Verse 24. The king said to Joab, when Joab came to him, let him, Absalom, dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses was told to leave Sinai. He said, God told Moses, leave Sinai. I want you to head out into the promised land. And Moses said to him, listen, if I have found favor in your sight, Lord, show me that I may know you and know your ways. I want to find favor in your sight. And God said to him, my presence, my panim, my face will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses replied, listen, if that's not the case, if your presence, if your panim, if knowing you and the intimacy I have with you and the rest I find with you, if it doesn't go with me, I'm not going. I'm not going. When you talk to someone, you talk to them what? Face to face. Relationship. Moses says, if your face, if your relationship, if the intimacy, if the rest, if knowing you is not with me, I'd rather, I'd rather die right now in the wilderness, in your presence, than go to the place of milk and honey without your presence. If given the choice, kill me right now. Because Moses understood our existence is meaningless and empty without the glory presence of God without experiencing the face, the glory, the knowing God personally and experiencing his relationship, a relationship with him, his presence. David refused to face his son. David refused to invite his son into his presence, his real presence, not just being in the same room. David was unwilling to reconcile with his child. David rejected his son because of his sin. And because of his sin, Absalom was banished from David's face from an intimate relationship with his father. Now listen carefully. Jesus Christ on the cross 
was banished from the father's face. The intimacy that he had eternally experienced was lost. The father refused to look on his face. In fact, God made it impossible for anyone to look on the face of Jesus as he died on the cross. Mark 15, the sixth hour came, there was darkness over the whole land. A complete removal of light as the judgment of God fell upon Jesus. And Jesus cries out, why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why has your face turned from me? Jesus experienced rejection, abandonment, and the loss of the Father's face and presence so that you and I will never, ever be alone again. So that you and I can experience eternal joy can eternally enjoy intimacy and relationship with the Father's face. What David did not do, forgive, reconcile, invite his son into his presence, Jesus does at Calvary. When he takes our sin, dies in our place, bore our just wrath and judgment so that you can come into his presence. You could be heirs of the kingdom. You can be children of God. You can have an intimate relationship with God. It's through his son. Do you know that gospel? Are you living in failure? Are you living in in your feelings? Are you living in the truth of the gospel? Have you repented and confessed your sins? Don't be like Absalom. Where is there guilt in me? There is guilt in us. And when God invites us into his presence, he deals with our guilt. He deals with our sin. He deals with our shame. Because Jesus Christ bore that and died for that and took our just judgment upon himself. Rose from the dead so that we can have a relationship with him. Father, it is my prayer, it is our prayer together that every single person in this room, and here's my voice, would know you and love you. Father, we are not allowed into your holy presence to see your face in our own merit, in our own struggles, in our own doing, in our own works, in our own uh, moral righteousness. Father, we are invited into your presence through the Lord Jesus Christ. Him alone can establish a right relationship and reconcile us to you. So God, as we continue to worship, we continue to sing and and praise you, let this song be a song of response, that we would worship you and give you thanks for what you have done in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who on the cross bore our sin, died in our place to give us life and a relationship with you. Help us to repent, to turn from sin, and to trust you today in Jesus' name.